folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And I think we got a pretty interesting show for you guys today. You know, Yes, we do. In today's outrage-fueled, highly cyclical media landscape, it's not uncommon to see a story burst into the national spotlight, dominate every news outlet, and then quickly fade out of sight and out of mind. Yeah, I, I think we've always been this way to some degree. Um, I mean, folks are definitely busy with their own lives, so you can't really say they don't care about an issue. Um, I mean, after all, there's only so much time you can dedicate to like worrying about the troubles of the world and, and whatever's dominating the news cycle this week and, and still keep your day job. Yeah. And well, as two struggling political podcast hosts, I assure you that we are well acquainted with that. Line. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, invariably a story breaks, like say, Hurricane Maria that devastated Puerto Rico in September of 2017. And, you know, we all watch on as things unfold. The story becomes the central topic at water coolers and social gatherings. Facebook. And, yeah, Facebook, social media. We, we write our checks. We support food drives. We keep up to date with the 24-7 live coverage. Uh, and, you know, it, it keeps going. Eventually, our two political parties find a bone to pick with each other over the story. Then debates rage online. Accusations are flung and rebutted. And then suddenly a new story breaks and, and we all move on. <laughs> and in the age of Trump, that cycle happens in about six hours. Sometimes that cycle happens over lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, largely that's where the issue ends up resting. I mean, sure, media organizations will occasionally issue us updates and you know, you it, depending on what kind of situation we're talking about, there may even be hearings that'll drag an issue back into the spotlight. But for most folks at that point, the lines are drawn, the points have been made, and and they're too busy dealing with whatever the new catastrophe or hotness is to worry about that old. And, stuff. and I'd say largely at that point, uh, the court of public opinion had has already been held. And yeah. people have made their decisions one way or the other, regardless of the outcomes of the trials or the hearings. Yeah, right. Um, you know, most people at that point have made up their mind what the narrative is, and they and they go on with their lives. Um, so today we're going to talk about a textbook case of of this happening, and we are going to go deep in depth to the Flint water crisis. Um, we are four years out from the decisions that first corrupted Flint's water supply. And we're going to look at what happened. Uh, we're going to look at what we've learned since and kind of where things stand today for the people of Flint, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, starting off, we've got so many different elements and, and characters and stuff in the story. We kind of wanted to first, like, kind of give you guys just like a little primer about some of the major players that are going to show up in this story. So kind of at the forefront of all this, we've got Rick Snyder. He is the governor of Michigan. Uh, we've got Darnell Early, who is the emergency manager who was in charge of Flint during the early part of this crisis, and yeah. he's going to appear a lot. Yeah, another name that you're going to hear a whole lot uh, is going to be the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, you know, sometimes we're going to call it the DEQ or the Mich you know, Department of Environmental Quality, but anytime you hear MDEQ, that's who we're talking about. Also involved, we have the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the KWA, the uh, who? Carignandi Water Authority. Carignandi Water Authority. Yeah, and that's uh, that's going to be the water company that Flint was transitioning to when the crisis happened. That's right. Uh, some of the other folks who will be involved are going to be Susan Hedman. She is the director of the EPA's Midwest Division. Uh, we've got Leanne Walters, who is a concerned citizen that lived in Flint. 
Uh, we've got Miguel Del Toro, who is a lone EPA employee, uh, and Mark Edwards, a v- Virginia Tech scientist that gets involved at one point. And finally, we've got Mona Hannah Atisha, who is a Flint pediatrician. Um, these are all names you should know as we're as we're talking through this. Um, we'll try to kind of remind you at certain points, but uh, follow along closely, folks, because it's yeah. a wild ride. All right. So to kick this bad boy off, we're going to travel back to the late 1970s. And That's in right. the late 1970s, Flynn was, you know, doing fairly good. I mean, you know, disco was in. Uh, you know, things were looking up, but no. But more importantly, <laughs> yeah. there uh, is a GM plant, uh, which is the city's largest employer, uh, that has largely been responsible for making Flint uh, pretty wealthy. They have the highest median income in the state at this point in the 70s. Right. Uh, but when we fast forward to 1981, GM is going to shut that plant down. And where Flint, you know, the argument can be made has had some troubles that reach far, far back. This is really going to be a hard nail. Uh, well, a hard obstacle for Flint to overcome. They're going to lose 80,000 jobs disappearing overnight and it's going to trigger a wave of flight from the now struggling city as people with means move away to find gainful employment elsewhere. That's right. Um, and, and that trend kind of continues as Flint uh, moves on into the 21st century. And in 2002, due in part to a $30 million deficit, Flint is declared to be in financial emergency and it's put under state control. So an emergency manager takes the helm uh, he starts slashing salaries and benefits for the mayor and city council. Rec centers are closed temporarily, along with the ombudsman's office. Uh, city workers are laid off. Water bills are raised. And more than a million dollars is approved for sewer and road improvements. Mm-hmm. And and this all happens because um, as people were leaving Flint, uh, obviously the wealthiest taxpayers were gone. Right. So Flint began to struggle keeping up a city that was... That was essentially too big for its population. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was definitely a factor. You also have a a series of terrible choices in trying to handle that burden uh, by the the Flint City Council and the various mayors that they had. And so basically, like you said, it triggered the emergency manager law, or at least the governor at the time was able to enact the emergency manager law. So what is an emergency manager? Well, it's, it's a law that's unique to Michigan, but basically... The governor has the ability to step in when a, when a city is struggling, declare a financial crisis, and appoint an emergency manager. He could also do such a, like, for instance, uh, he could do it to the a school system, mm-hmm. say there's a financial emergency and so on and so forth. But what does an emergency manager do? Um, here's the definition. An emergency manager is an official appointed by the governor to take control of local government under a financial emergency in the state of Michigan. A manager temporarily supplants the governing body chief executive officer or chief administrative officer of the local government and has the authority to remove any of the unit's elected officials should they refuse to provide any information or assistance. Managers have complete control over the local unit with the ability to reduce pay, outsource work, reorganize departments, and modify employee contracts. Okay, so so an emergency manager um, kind of steps in and 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 takes over the mayor's job, right? Yeah, I mean, more um, well takes over the city government and job. and the yeah. city council. So he yeah. kind of supplants the elected government in time of emergency. And and I get that. I I understand that sometimes you may have a system 
that's that's messing up so bad mm-hmm. that's either so corrupt it's not functioning yeah, well or just ineptitude or yeah. just ineptitude that's right um that you need someone to come in and kind of set things straight at the at, on the other hand i have a really hard time supplanting elected government yeah, yeah. um i think when when people elect city officials it's on them to to toss them out and elect new ones if you don't right. like how they're how they're running so to me, there's something there's something off about putting one person, uh, you know, ahead of of all these other people and, and supplanting that power. Uh, I, I'm not sure how I'd feel about that. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really tough one to wrap your head around because you know, again, it's almost like you're installing a dictator, mm. and so you know, clearly, I don't like that. But what happens when you know someone is entrenched? Let's say. Uh, you know, I could point out to Washington, D.C. with Marion Barry, who, you know, got elected and reelected mayor for years and, was, you know, just killing the town and everything. Is he what? the one that was smoking crack with hookers? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, what happens if somebody like that gets entrenched in a town? Uh, they're not voting him out for whatever reason. Maybe there's stuff in the ballot boxes, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and the state, meanwhile, is having to prop up, you know, this city or this region or this school system and you just keep having the same ineptitude, right? I mean, that sounds like a great idea to have somebody whose whose bias is towards balancing the books, right? Is who you know we're going to go in here, we're going to cut the waste, we're going to you know balance things out. We're not going to spend more than we make. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, I don't think you can put you know an emergency manager in control and and not have any mechanism for the elected officials. To, to take back control. To take back control, <laughs> to interject, you know? So let's look at what happened with the emergency manager in Flint. Uh, and this is kind of the first time around. They 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 have to flirt with this emergency management thing a couple times in their history. So uh, in December 2003, this is a year after uh, emergency an emergency was declared. Um, an audit shows that the city deficit is reduced by uh, actually to about $14 million dollars. And a later report shows the deficit at six to eight million dollars. So they they absolutely this guy Highly came effective. in yeah. and reduced the budget. I mean, granted, he cut social programs and all mm-hmm. the all these things, um, but he he reduced the budget. And and I think they spent the million dollars on improving you know sewers and roads. Right. So they got some stuff done as a result. So in in June two thousand four, that emergency manager recommends ending the state's takeover. He leaves and hands the reins back. Yeah. Um, and, and ideally, I mean, you know, that's, that's what you want to happen. You want to, he comes in, he does his job. As soon as Flint can stand on its own, he rides off into the sunset. You know what right. I mean? So, but unfortunately in Flint, uh, you know, the struggles continued. And by the 2010 census, we find out that the population of Flint has now halved since 1980. In 1980, right. it was roughly about 200,000 people. Now it's it's dwindled down to about a hundred thousand, and like you said, with the tax base dwindling, the city is experiencing hard burdens with upholding the infrastructure of a city that you know had blossomed into a city ready to serve twice the amount of people. Absolutely. Um, as well, we noticed that you know, as as you referenced with the the flight, the white flight, uh, the racial makeup of the city as of the 2010 census is 56 percent African American and 37 percent white. Uh, with the difference, you know, the rest being made up by Native Americans, Latinos, Asians, and others. But, you know, this this becomes a unique situation. That is definitely out of step with the rest of Michigan, I assure you. So things since the last emergency manager um, have, have started to go bad again. 
And in 2011, Governor Rick Snyder declares another state of financial emergency, and the state is once again placed in charge of Flint. Um, Soon after this, we start to see pieces of the Flint water crisis start to appear. Yeah, in that intervening time period between 2011 and 2014, uh, the, the emergency managers in the city and the city council and the mayor come up with a plan to save Flint money. They decide that what they're going to do is switch from the Detroit water system to this new water authority that's being set up, the KWA. Uh, it's in 2014 in April that Darnell Early, the current emergency manager, uh, along with a seven to one vote from the city council officially makes the switch. The thing was though, is that the KWA pipeline to Lake Huron would not be completed until 2016 And unfortunately, because of the way that the negotiations went with the Detroit Water Company or authority, the Detroit had pretty much just like cut Flint off. They gave him a year's notice. They were saying, if you're going to switch, this contract ends in in 2014 or something. So there's this period between when the pipeline will be completed and when our contract runs out and you guys are going to have to go find something else, buddy. Yeah, there's there's no grace period. (laughs) Our contract is done. For years, Flint's backup plan in the event of an emergency had always been to draw water from the Flint River. And so that was their plan. That's what they were going to do for this intervening period from 2014 until that pipeline was completed in 2016. So that's exactly what they did. Um, They hooked up their water system to the Flint River. And over the course of the summer of that year, the city began to receive complaints from residents of tainted, uh, foul-smelling water, symptoms like rashes and hair loss from drinking and bathing in it. And the city actually issued two separate boil advisories that summer and fall due to the presence of E. coli and other bacteria. But they weren't making a big stink out of it. It, it. it wasn't a big deal to them. Right. And it was largely going unnoticed at this time. However, on October 1st of 2014, I want you to keep that in mind. Uh, the local GM plant announced that it would stop using the treated Flint River water in its local plant because employees noticed that it was corroding engine parts. And this was picked up by local news and definitely like reported and, you know, it made public. The water is corroding engine parts at the GM plant. October 2014. This is what months, four months after they switched, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So in January uh, of 2015, a couple months later, Flint warns its residents that there are high levels of byproducts from treatment chemicals in the water. It notes that the sick and elderly may be at risk, but maintains that the water is still safe to consume. That same month, a state building in Flint, the Department of Technology, Management, and Budget, begins to transport in its own water. Right. So here we have a state building that is aware that there's a problem, at least to the extent that they have to bring in their own water. On January 12th, 2015, Detroit offers to hook Flint back up to its water supply free of charge. Then emergency manager Darnell Early rejects the offer. And... And this is weird. So so Detroit at this point sees that there is a problem and and obviously knows there's a problem. The emergency manager knows there's a problem, gets this offer and goes, nah, I think we can I think we can fix the problems. And and to me, right out the gate, 
this is suggesting some sort of bias. Like he wants this project to go forward. And right. and maybe it's maybe it's money saving. Obviously mm-hmm. the water coming from Detroit is not going to be free. They didn't right. like the the price they were paying for water. So, yeah. you know, maybe his bias here is that he wants to save the city money. After all, that's his job. Yeah. Um so he desperately wants this pipeline to go through. And at this point, they're they're thinking it's isolated incidents, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's surely well, it's not other, widespread. That's the other thing that's important to remember. So, as far as you you can make a case that, as far as Mister Early knows, at this point, his his water plant treatment crew is telling him that they're on it. Yeah, we've got a couple problems. We've switched over to the Flint River, but you know we're fixing them, we're solving them, we're doing everything we can, and water is leaving this plant at federal accepted federal and state levels. That's uh-huh. that's going to come up a lot in this story. That's right. The other thing that you got going on is now the Detroit Water Authority has you over a barrel. Yeah, they say we're going to hook you back up free of charge, <laughs> but there's also the matter of that contract that you have to sign with them to get water from them, and now you're crawling back to them. Right. And so, you know, I, I not to mention the the possibly wasted effort of this pipeline that's right. about to go in that you've invested in and, and so on and so forth. However, it is very curious that he rejected this at this point. So in February of 2015, uh, a test at Miss Leanne Walters home. Uh, if you remember, we mentioned Miss Leanne Walters in the intro, um, finds lead levels of 104 parts per billion. The threshold for the EPA to initiate enforcement action is 15 parts per billion. So this is well, almost 10 times <laughs> yeah, yeah. the accepted level uh, at the EPA. And at this point, one of the most amazing parts of this story happens. And what we kind of see is the first hero kind of emerges from the clouds. And and based on the symptoms that, that Miss Walter's children were exhibiting, uh, she insisted, she knew that something was wrong with the water, even though city officials were saying everything's fine, everything's fine. Yeah. She stays on Google night after night teaching herself about lead contamination and water treatment. And Miss Walters was able to actually examine city records and determine that the city wasn't using a corrosion control treatment on the Flint River water. And if you'll remember back to 2014, when GM says, hey, this is corroding our engine parts before right. any of this comes out. She she connected those things and found, hey, there's there's corrosion treatment that's going to keep metal from being corroded by this highly acidic water. Yeah. She pulls city records. She actually, she actually goes, they're not buying it. She identified exactly what chemical it was supposed to be. And then, yeah, she actually looked at like the inventory records for the water plant. And she said, it's not present. So I know they're not doing it because it's not here. You know, God bless this woman. And she, and she also realized that, you know, when she had the city, because, you know, she's on the phone, you know, night and day, my kids, I need you to come out and test the water. When the city come out to test her water, uh, she saw that the employee flushed her tap for several minutes before gathering the sample that the one that it tested at 104 parts per billion. So in other words, he walked in, he turned the faucet on. Let it run for a while until the brown gunk shot out and waited for it to go clear and then took his sample. That's right. And as you know, anybody who samples water and and checks for water quality will tell you that doesn't work. That only tells you what the water is picking up as it quickly travels through the faucet. Not what the water has picked up sitting in the Not what's sitting in the pipe. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I, I can't stress to you how impressed I am with the fact that this woman went full Sherlock Holmes on this situation. And, and you know, it's even more than that. Like, you know, throughout the entire course of this story, she's going to, you know, be a driving force in the protests, the town hall meetings and, you know, contacting officials and stuff. And, and really and truly, a lot of people will say that, like, you know, if there's no Leanne Walters, who knows how long this would have went on. Right. Um, so, so what happens when, when Leanne Walters points this out? Uh, well, the city and the Michigan department of environmental quality that MDEQ are telling her that her plumbing is faulty and they offer to pay her for running a garden hose from her neighbor's house. Uh, and, and Rick Snyder's office announced Flint's water system is producing water that meets all state and federal standards. Uh, at this point, she decides she's going to contact Miguel Del Toro at the EPA. Uh, Del Toro comes in and finds lead levels seven times the EPA limit. He emails aides at the uh, at the EPA and the MDEQ. He voices his concerns about the lead and the practice of pre-flushing before sampling. And he then puts Mrs. Walters in contact with Mark Edwards, who is a Virginia Tech professor and an expert on lead corrosion. Yeah. So in March of 2015, the city conducts a follow-up test in Miss Walters' home. Again, she says they came in, they used the pre-flushing method, but this time the lead content in her home tested 400 parts per billion. That is 27 times the EPA limit. That same month, the Flint City Council votes that they want to do everything possible to return immediately to Detroit water but they're overruled by the new emergency manager, Jerry Ambrose, who cites the MDEQ's claim that city water met all health and safety standards in both January and February. He also, in an internal email to the, the governor's office, uh, you know, said, you know, he laid out the cost. I think it was him and the head of the state treasury. And they were like, Flint's going to have to pay a million dollars. You're going to bankrupt Flint if we switch back to Detroit mm. now. That's and And I think at this point, Leanne should be the canary in the coal mine, right? Because everyone at this point should have realized what was happening. Um, she knew right. that corrosion control agents were not being added to Flint River's water. Mm -hmm. GM knew and told everyone that the water was corroding their engine parts, which means the water was corroding the pipes. Right. So at the point when the level was, was 100 parts per billion, right. uh, the pipes had just started corroding. But every day past this, the mm -hmm. pipes corrode more and are leaching more and more lead into the water. More lead's being exposed from the lining, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. At the point where Miss Walters gets them to come back and it tests 400 parts per billion, when, you know, months ago it was 100, yeah. I feel like that's the point where people stop and go, whoa. Well, here's, here's the only problem with that, though, right? So according to the MDEQ, the problem is Miss Walters' pipes. Mm. So they're now, saying granted, isolated incident. Yeah. Now, granted, you do have that GM issue, but, you know, MDEQ is saying that was a pipe issue as well. So it's not that they're arguing that she is getting more lead contamination. They're like, yeah, she is. But they're saying that it's because of her house's plumbing mm. and, you know, she needs to have it replaced. And like I said, I mean, that's evidenced by the fact that the city was like, well, we'll just hook a water hose up to your neighbor's house. They think the neighbor's fine. It, it hasn't dawned on them that this is way more widespread than they realize. I see. In April of 2015, the Virginia Tech professor, Mark Edwards, conducts a series of tests at Miss Walter's home. One sample 
test positive for lead at 13,200 parts per billion. Just to remind you guys, the EPA's threshold for action is at 15 parts per billion. 13,200 is twice the level needed by the EPA to qualify as hazardous waste. Edward's team also identifies at least four other homes with lead products. Ah, so this is the first time we see that it's actually uh, maybe larger than one or two homes. Yeah, well, we've definitely had more people complaining, but now we have tests Mm. that, you know, are on, you know. But here's the thing is like Edwards is doing this on his own time. So he has these tests and he's going to go to City Hall. But again, you've got the Department of Environmental Quality that's saying, well, we're testing water too and everything's fine. At at the same time that uh, Mark Edwards has come in and started testing water and, and giving some attention um, this is one year since the water has been switched to the Flint River, and people are already regularly protesting outside of City Hall. Uh, they've been at it since February. That same month, Flint is actually taken out of the financial emergency designation, and the city no longer has an emergency manager. Control is returned back to city government. So in June of 2015, we have a major development. After confirming his own tests, and Mark Edwards' results, and writing numerous times to inform state aides of the problems in Flint, Miguel del Toro, the, the EPA guy, sends a memo up the chain in the EPA about the grave threat facing Flint and both the city and state's unwillingness to address the issue. The memo is leaked to the press by an ACLU journalist named Kurt Guillermo. And so now the story is kind of out. And and this is really where Del Toro uh, emerges as the second hero of this story, because without this guy, um, <laughs> the Flint crisis may have been even worse. Um, so since February, you know, like we said, he's been trying to raise the alarm. No one's listening. He's told the city and state exactly what the problem is, what they're doing wrong. And now he's got proof that he's informing his bosses. But uh, he's not going to find help there either. Upon leaking of the memo. Susan Hedman, who's the director of the EPA's Midwest Division, will actually go quietly and apologize in an email to Flint's mayor for disrupting the narrative that Flint's been telling all their citizens that the water's fine. Uh, She'll publicly call the memo a draft report that was released prematurely and says that the EPA will release the full report after it's been properly vetted and revised by EPA management. Meanwhile, the Michigan program director for the EPA, Ms. Jennifer Crooks, fancy that name, would coach the MDEQ on how to respond if journalists or legislators questioned them about the memo. Though they'd all been CC'd in the memo, she told them that they could simply say that they never received the official report from Miguel. <laughs> and that's sneaky. So what they've done is they've they've called that a draft memo. Yeah. And when when reporters ask them about anything on the draft memo, they're, they're going to say, well, the report's not finished. Just just answer about the report. Yeah, yeah. So they can evade questions about this memo that they all read and were aware of. And, and what's going on here? I mean, the EPA is coaching members of the D- Michigan Department of Environmental Quality on how to handle the tough questions? Like, what? What? You know, that is such a bizarre role for the EPA to be stepping in and filling. Well, it's bizarre that the EPA is not concerned at this point, too. Right, right. Um, you know, they've got one of their own saying, hey, something's seriously wrong. Here's what it is. And the 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 organization in charge of protecting people uh-huh. is, is wiping it all under the rug? Yeah. 
what's going on here? Well, for sure, because I mean, now Miguel has run it up the flagpole at the EPA, right? It will be seven more months, 11 months after Del Toro first officially expressed concern. Like when he first went to Miss Walter's house and had sent his initial like, you know, reaction memos up the, you know, up the chain. But this is an official report. It will be seven more months before the EPA issues an emergency order in Flint. Um, as far as what exactly happens at this point with like Del Toro and the EPA behind the scenes, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, in the days after his memos leaked, Del Toro wrote an email that, that later came out where he is clearly pissed off. In the email, he calls the EPA a cesspool of officials and offers to do more water testing on his own dime, implying that he was told to stop. To further corroborate that idea, do you remember how we said he put Miss Walters in touch with Mark Edwards? Mm. Well, Miss Walters says that at that time, he cryptically told her that he wasn't allowed to speak to her or about Flint and said that she should contact Mark Edwards. Mark Edwards also says that during this period, uh, Miguel Del Toro was barred from attending a, a conference in Minnesota for, you know, EPA officials. And stuff. Mm. So it sounds like there was a, a an, an effort to shut him up and to yeah. silence him. He felt like for whatever reason, uh, maybe an NDA, maybe yeah. a payoff. Right. Uh, but for whatever reason, he was no longer able to help and passed her off. Yeah. Well, else listen, hopefully well, and, and what's awesome is, though, is and one of the reasons I consider him a hero. He still he puts her in touch with Mark Edwards. Right. He still continues to conduct tests. He still takes Mark Edwards' data and puts together this memo. Like Del Toro's awesome, if you ask me, man. <laughs> and uh, you know, here's here's some more quotes from his uh his post memo email. Uh he says, Sorry for the rant, but I'm really getting tired of the bad actors being ignored and people trying to do the right thing are constantly being subjected to intense scrutiny as if we were doing something wrong. He goes on to say, it's all this don't find anything bad crap at EPA that is the reason I desperately want to leave. He writes, I'm not happy to find bad things. It's completely stressful because it means children are being damaged and I have to put up with all this political crap. But where these problems exist, I will not ignore them. Now, you'll notice that we're saying that there's this mystery and, you know, we don't really know what happened. Well, that's because Del Toro himself has not commented on whether he was or wasn't punished. He stayed completely <laughs> quiet even to this day. He still works at the EPA. And when he was questioned about that memo where, you know, he said, you know, it's like they don't want you to find anything bad. He would only say that he was frustrated when he wrote it. He apologizes to any colleagues that he may have offended, and he believes the EPA does good work. So in full defense, complete 180 from the leaked email, uh, <laughs> in full defense of his colleagues in the EPA, when just a minute ago he was slamming them. Yeah, I, I think it's because you have to realize by the time that happens, by the time he gets questioned about the EPA, that's after Trump is president. And I, I swear to you, I think that the reason he's staying mum on it and won't say a word about what happened to him is because he doesn't want the EPA to catch any more crap than it's already catching. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the sense I get, man. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I think, I mean, reading that man's email, I feel like he's a true believer. You know what I'm saying? He believes in what the EPA is doing. He might be mad about the bad apples and stuff, but, but you know, he doesn't want to see it go down. Right. And and soon after this, Susan Hedman, that's the, the head of the Midwest Division, uh, actually resigns in early 2016. That's shortly after the EPA actually acknowledged that there was a problem in Flint. Her position is that the EPA did everything it could behind the scenes to get city and state officials to correct the problems, and there is actually some evidence to support that. However, 
Um, as to why the EPA didn't step in and take control or at least announce the issue publicly, she cites her office's interpretation of what she claims are ambiguous laws about the EPA's role in this kind of thing. Uh, it was her office's opinion that they were merely to issue guidelines and advice, whereas it was the state's obligation to actually correct the issue. Uh, now, an inspector general report later stated that the EPA could have stepped in as early as 30 days after Del Toro's memo under the Safe Safe Drinking Water Act. So yeah. she's <laughs> she's kind of absolving themselves of responsibility. And it's funny because she's saying, well, these regulations, all these regulations are too complicated to understand. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's my job to understand them. But actually, I, I couldn't understand them at all. I was just horribly confused about about what I was to do. Which is funny because, you know, just giving you a little preview, we'll get into later. That's ultimately going to be the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality's case. They're going to say that they didn't understand this federal regulation and all that stuff. But, I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's nonsense. And here's the thing. It's one thing for her to say we felt like it was on the state and the state needed to fix it and stuff. That's fine. But when you know people were, like, in serious health trouble, and they did, as soon as, as, soon as they got Del Toro's memo, they knew that this was bad. Right. And that people were being seriously harmed. It's your job. You got kids at town hall meetings with their hair falling out, man. Right. It is your job to say something publicly. And let me tell you what it's not your job to do. It is not your job to coach the officials on how to dodge the memo better. Boom. It is not your job to apologize to the mayor for creating a kerfluffle. And, and you know, there was this, there's, there's this whole like track where over the course of the previous four or five years, the EPA had been trying to form a better working partnership with the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. And so the question becomes how much of that was they're trying to cozy up to each other and yeah, they don't want to ruffle feathers. Politics. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, we start to reach a fever pitch in Flint, right? You have Del Toro's memo come out. People have been protesting since February. And now when this memo leaks, they're encouraged. We see in emails behind the scenes that the governor's office is kind of like, what, what's, what's going on here? I thought we had an infrastructure problem. You know, and so we start to see efforts ramp up to kind of suppress a panic. Uh, on July 9th, 2015, Flint's mayor, Dane Walling, drinks tap water on local television <laughs> and talks about how his family uses Flint water every day. You know, uh, July 13th, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality states on Michigan radio that anyone who is concerned about lead in the drinking water in Flint can just relax. There's and, no problem. And this is about the time that our third and fourth heroes emerge, um, doing everything they can to blow the whistle on what is obviously, to them at least, a crisis. Uh, so in August, Mark Edwards and a team from Virginia Tech say they will independently test Flint's water. On September 8th, they released their findings that the Flint River is 19 times as corrosive as the Detroit water supply, and 40% of Flint homes are contaminated. An official from MDEQ says Flint may need infrastructure upgrades, but he's skeptical of the team's findings. Yeah. On September 24th, 2015, pediatrician and researcher Mona Hanna Atisha goes public with her own research showing that the percentage of Flint children under five years old with elevated blood lead levels has doubled and in some cases tripled since the change in the water supply. And, and this woman is yet another hero. She had the foresight to go, Hey, I got these kids coming in with lead poisoning symptoms. Mm -hmm. Let's test their blood. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> And she watched and she noticed like, Holy crap, 
There's tons of kids with lead poisoning in my office every day. Again, those are two people like Mark Edwards and, uh, you know, Miss, Miss Atisha. They, they ended up, you know, they are still strong forces in the movement to get Flint, uh, Flint clean water. It's not like Mark Edwards, who's from Virginia Tech, like just washed his hands and went back to his college or, or she just moved on with her life. They're still there every day fighting for the rights and stuff. And actually, I, I just want a quick side note. Most of what we know about how Miguel del Toro got published is because Mark Edwards has been his mouthpiece. Because well, whereas Miss Del Toro, Mister Del Toro, won't say anything. Mark Edwards is like this dude's a hero, and they're screwing him. He's an like, open yeah, book, yeah. yeah, dude. He's telling everybody, man. So, so the kind of nasty thing about this. So, so Mona releases her research about blood levels, and MDEQ actually pushes back on her too. Spokesman Brad Werfel calls her findings unfortunate in a time of near hysteria among residents. And they push really hard to discredit her. They're on local radio. They're on television. And and I want to remind you guys that at this time, the national news hasn't even picked up on the story. Uh, the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press weren't reporting on it at this time. Uh, the water switch was April 2014. People were reporting symptoms very soon after. And here we are, September 2015, and MDEQ is spe- sweeping this growing body of evidence directly under the rug as quickly as they possibly can. And and why? Yeah. <laughs> and why? No, it is an interesting question on how, I mean, because you know, if people are protesting outside of City Hall pretty much from February up till now, people were writing letters to journalists. And, you know, we did have the ACLU journalist guy who who broke the memo or whatever, but how is it not getting picked up? Where is the New York Times? Where is the Washington Post? This is the point right here with her her uh, her study of blood levels in children where the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, who are right down the road, they finally kind of start looking into it, you know, what's going on. And they're going to ramp up in a big way here going forward. Um, it's It's right around this time on September 25th, Flint finally issues a lead warning advising residents to drink and cook only with cold tap water, but they still maintain that the water complies with federal standard. And I'm totally, I'm just, I'm speechless at this point. MDEQ is, is the state agency responsible for, for keeping people safe. They've dropped the ball. Uh, There's people pro it's just crazy. I'm speechless. There's, there's nothing more to say. Like everyone at this point has their heads in the sand for whatever reason. Oh, it, oh, it keeps going. On October 2nd, a press release from Governor Rick Snyder's office says the water leaving Flint's drinking water system is safe to drink, but some families with lead plumbing in their homes or service connections could experience higher levels of lead in the water that comes out of their faucets. And, you know, again, Snyder, Snyder is an interesting throughout this entire ordeal, right? Like, so he was absolutely sluggish to react. This statement right here, I, I get it from a standpoint because that's what MDEQ is telling him. But there's other things starting to pile up that would make you hope that this man would begin to question his own agency. I mean, I get it. They're the experts. They're telling you, oh, you know, it's fine. It's just infrastructure. Don't worry and stuff. But you also have to remember something that we haven't mentioned yet. At this point, the governor's office has a report from earlier that year that says there's been an outbreak of Legionnaires disease in Flint. <laughs> uh, something like 90 people have, have suddenly contracted Legionnaires disease. So when you see this and you see the EPA memo and Del Toro's blowing up your state agencies and you know, the EPA 
like Susan Hedman said, they are talking to state officials and saying something's wrong with the water testing and all that good stuff. Mark Edwards has got his studies and all that. You would hope that at this point, Rick Snyder would say, hey, man, maybe something's wrong with my department. Well, and I don't think you can look at Snyder's statement here without seeing that he clearly knows exactly what had happened. He's almost he's almost saying it between the lines. He says the water coming out of the facility is good. The water that's leaving some of your taps is bad. Right, right. He knows it's getting corroded on the way. It's picking up lead and contaminants, and and that's what people are drinking. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah I just want to <laughs> just want to choke someone. No, it, it, it is. It's frustrating as hell. But I think there is something that we need to talk about here, and that's that Rick Snyder has become the primary villain, uh, especially for the left. In fact, there was a debate. Uh, you know, just a few months after this in, in early of 2016 in Flint and, uh, you know, it's a democratic primary debate and Hillary Clinton, you know, just lambasted him, said he should, or no, it was Bernie Sanders. I'm sorry. Said he should resign. Yes. Uh, you know, they absolutely like tore him a new asshole. Again, he is no doubt responsible for the emergency managers and the decisions, you know, the people he appointed, the decisions that they've made. And he's obviously responsible for the conduct of the Michigan Department of Environment. He is Quality. not solely responsible at this time, but, though. We have got failures at the EPA already. We've got huge, huge failures at the MDEQ yeah. who are desperately trying to sweep this thing away. Yeah. You cannot place the blame the solely Flint on Rick City Snyder. City Council, the emergency managers. Remember that. Flint's no longer under the emergency manager at this That's right. Point. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're four months away from them having an emergency manager, so... Why is this still happening, man? Snyder is quoted as saying, because to his credit, like in January of 16, when this is all just going to come out, national news and everything, he is quoted as saying, we screwed up. And he says, what's happened here is a complete catastrophic failure at every level of government, local, state, federal. So in a sense, like I, I kind of, I'm not, I'm not going to say tip my cap because piss on this guy, but at the same time, when you look at the emails, because he he released all the emails. Well, and you got to handle you got to hand that to him. Yeah, from, he did un, unprompted as well. Right, right. From the governor's office, he released all the emails uh, related to Flint. Now there were some redactions, but you know he says those are unrelated matters. Some people think differently, but it's still it's one hundred twenty seven thousand documents or something like that. And uh, but when you look at the emails, you you see the governor's office like start to figure it out. I think personally, in the beginning. They, they believe their department. They the believe department said experts. everything's fine, and they were like, cool. You start to see over that summer of 2015, like there, there starts to be questions. In, in fact, at one point, the governor's chief of staff hits up the head of the Department of Treasury, the uh, Department of Environmental Quality, and the Department of Health and Human Services, and he's like, hey, can you guys personally take a look at Flint? Like, I know what you're telling us, but I was in Flint today, and I cannot shake the feeling that we're not serving these people. That's what he says. Like, like he's basically saying just something doesn't feel right about this. And these people have brown water everywhere. Can you, can you make sure that you're right on this? Right. You know? And, and by this time, man, the, the tides are, are pretty much overwhelming. October 8th, lead is found at high levels in the drinking fountains of three Flint schools. Snyder announces that Flint will go back to buying water from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And the city actually approves that and makes the switch about a week later. Um, Snyder goes on to declare a state of emergency in January 2016 
followed shortly by the EPA's formal emergency order and Obama's state of emergency declaration. So this is this is years later. No, yeah, the the, the switch happened in April of 2014 and it is January of 2016 before the governor declares an emergency. The national news picks it up. Obama declares a state of emergency. Yeah. And to me, all of that should have happened years ago. Right. I mean, that should have that should have happened at least as soon as uh, the blood tests were mm-hmm. publicized, uh, probably before that. Um, I would say as soon as people started realizing that pipes were corroding and lead levels were increased, that's a state of emergency to me. People's hair is falling out. Um, it's absolutely cra- crazy. Um, so, so what started happening after the emergency declared is actually what what you would expect to happen. Mm. Um, so, Obama sends eighty five million dollars in federal aid to Michigan uh, for relief of Flint residents. This eventually turns into a state and federally funded four hundred and fifty million dollar aid package that provides things like free bottled water and filters to Flint residents, among other things. Um, and and this was largely the result of investigations, correct? Like there were correct uh, uh, congressional hearings. Well, not. I mean, there were congressional hearings, and on the strength of the congressional hearings, uh, that uh, hundred million, I think, of that four hundred and fifty. But yeah, basically, from January, you know, up till now, like state, federal, everybody's been marshaling resources to send to Flint, and you've also seen you know, all kinds of local efforts and everything else is people, you know, who are finally aware America is, you know, trying to pitch in and help these people out. Right. And exactly what needed to happen all along finally starts happening. They're getting aid. People are donating water in mass. I know uh, a guy here in town, Richard Spaulding, uh, was packing trucks full of water mm-hmm. and having people drive them to Detroit. He was he was running uh, you know, Facebook ads asking people for donations, and he was filling those trucks, man. And people all across America were filling trucks with water. Um, money was being diverted, pipes were being replaced. Like right. we came together yeah. once we realized that Flint was in dire need. Uh, you're right, we absolutely did. I mean, you know, people also got fired, investigations got started. But I think, as is often the case, as we started out the show, once that happened, and once we expended that big effort. Then we all started to kind of lose, you know, the attention and look, start to look elsewhere. Meanwhile, it's it's still going on in the city of Flint. And what do I mean by that? Well, the city has now of- officially switched back to Detroit Water and signed a contract. Believe it or not, the city council dallied on signing the contract <laughs> uh, with Detroit Water. So uh, Let's again, just wait for this KAW pipeline another year. That man. is that is a very curious decision to make, man. Um, we saw in uh, January of 2017, a $722 million class action lawsuit was filed against the EPA on behalf of more than 1,700 residents impacted by the water crisis. Um, in March of that year, the EPA announced that it had awarded $100 million to Flint for drinking water infrastructure upgrades. Also later in March, a federal judge approves a $97 million settlement in which the state of Michigan agrees to replace lead or galvanized steel water lines in the city of Flint. Uh, the state will cover the cost of replacing the water lines, the pipes that connect household plumbing to the main distribution pipe running beneath the streets for at least 18,000 Flint households by 2020. Yeah. So the, yeah, by 2020. So Exactly how are things on the ground right now in Flint? 
Well, we can tell you that as of July of 2018, the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, mm. and the EPA, our old friends, have stated that the water is well below the 15 part per billion threshold for lead in the overwhelming majority of Flint. The 90th percentile of homes contain something like four to six part per billion. 99% of the schools were below five parts per billion. So the DEQ and the EPA haven't changed their story one bit. They're still <laughs> running with that same old line. <laughs> um, no, the truth is thousands of lead water lines have been replaced, but there are still thousands of lead lines in need of replacement. Um, again, like you said, their, their complete replacement isn't expected until 2020. So there are still reports of spiking lead levels at various homes as damage that was done during the initial, you know, corrosive water running through there finally causes the lead to give way. Like it's, you know, it's just over time and it's going to give way. Right. And I'm sure as they're replacing parts of the line, it loosens up sludge and stuff right. and that's getting washed out. Yeah. So very much as a resident of Flint, uh, after this whole ordeal, I don't think I would be bathing in it. Right. I right. would still be using bottles of water possibly for the next years. Well, I mean, it's not like everyone can afford to test the water coming out of their faucets themselves. And I'll be damned if I'm going to trust the EPA, uh, the Department of Environmental Quality, <laughs> or the governor's office at this point. As a Flint resident, there's there's no chance it's not going to happen. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned bottled water because in April of 2018, the state discontinued the free bottled water distribution programs to the ire most of the residents and current Flint mayor, Karen Weaver. Now, Nestle announced the following month that it would donate $100,000, I'm sorry, 100,000 bottles a week, but that's going to end on September 3rd, 2018. So people are, you know, the people who need the water with the lead spikes and everything, they are most certainly back to struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And and here you've got the state government who who ran out of their $450 million aid package right. and are saying, well, we just don't have the money. Right. Uh, we're going to discontinue this. Well, screw off, guys, <laughs> because this is your responsibility. Clearly, uh, the state, the federal government, someone should pick up the tab here yeah. and continue providing Flint residents with water for I don't know how long. Can yeah. you imagine how long would it be for you till you could go back and, and get a glass of water out of your tap. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I understand that, you know, they can't, they can't just do it indefinitely. And there is going to come a day where Flint residents probably still aren't going to trust the water, but they've got to stop, you know, but I don't, I don't think it's yet. It's one of those things. I can't give you a hard definition, man, but I'll know it when I see it. Well, at I least till 2020. I mean, they're yeah, saying yeah, the maybe pipes at least aren't going to be 2020. Yeah, yeah. 2020. Um, I, I know that uh, I read an article uh, and the lady was talking about exactly that. She was saying that, you know, we've still got problems at my house. And she started talking about, you know, the tests that her husband had taken and the tests that she had taken, and, you know, she's going on and on and on. And then I realized that her and her husband have a testing regimen at their tap now. Yes. Probably for the rest of their lives. Yes. You know, and I think that that's one of the first indicators that speaks to the fact that this is not only ongoing, but it's going to be going for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine there's there's children all throughout Flint with with lead poisoning. Every time your child comes home with a low test score, mm -hmm. you got to wonder. Yeah. Uh especially, you know, your your babies that you fed formula that you were mixing with with water coming out of these taps when they're 25 and and they flunk out of college. Yeah. Like you got to wonder. No, I think they, I think actually a wonderful example of that, well, I, you know, not wonderful, but 
Remember Miss Walters, our, our heroic whistleblower? Yes. Well, she did not escape, uh, you know, unfortunately, the tainted water. Um, all four of her children tested positive for high levels of lead in their blood. And the youngest of her twins, who had a previous immune system problem, uh, qualified as full-on lead poisoned. Um, this is from a Mother Jones piece, uh, you know, on her. And it, she says, the hardest thing is not knowing how the lead exposure will affect her, uh, her kids in the long term. Gavin, her youngest twin, was the party animal. Uh, lately, he's lost his appetite and sleeps more, though. At five, he weighs a mere 35 pounds to Garrett, his brother's 53. And he mispronounces words that he could once handle. Garrett was recently diagnosed with ADHD. And both boys continue to ask when handed a cup of water, whether it's good water or bad water. And that's like PTSD level. I mean, yeah. these kids are not going to escape that. Uh, exposed children are at risk for a number of problems, lower IQ scores, developmental delays, behavioral issues such as ADHD. Uh, even after the lead exposure stops, the effects can last for years or even be permanent in some cases. Yeah, and um, as we said, the lead contamination caused an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in Flint that you know, in, it, it infected 90 and ultimately led to the deaths of 12 people. A uh, 2017 working paper by David Slusky and Daniel Grossman reported that fetal death rates rose by 58%, while the fertility rate among the city's women dipped by 12% after the water source switch. So, I mean, these are, these are impacts that are going to be felt for years to come. I mean, it's it's going to take so long to untangle this mess and see who was affected by what. And, and you know, you, you got these class action lawsuits. I mean, it's almost premature, really, in a sense, when you think about it, because we really don't know exactly how all these kids are going to be impacted. That's right. And how do you and how do you even approach getting justice uh, for an entire city for 100,000 people, um, you know, who are affected by this when you can't even you can't even nail down uh, exactly what it's caused? I mean, there's just right. no way there's going to be no way there's 100,000 people that are possibly permanently changed because of elevated lead levels in the water because local government screwed up, state government screwed up, and federal government screwed up. Uh, so how do we begin to approach justice except with our, with our albeit flawed, court system? But yeah. uh, we are very much putting people through the ringer and trying to find out who is responsible. Right. I think that's another popular perception about Flint. You know, like we said, most people think, well, it's, it's run its course, it's over. But I think a lot of people think that everybody just got away scot-free. And that's not quite the case. In fact, very much so not the case. 15 people have been criminally charged over the Flint water crisis. Um, among them are Nick Lyon, the director of Michigan's Health and Human Services Department, uh, Dr. Eden Wells, the state's chief medical executive, uh, Darnell Early, the emergency uh, manager who we mentioned earlier, Gerald Ambrose, the emergency manager that was after him, um, and Howard Croft, who was the city of Flint's public works superintendent. Uh, most of these guys are getting charges, uh, you know, like misconduct in office, uh, obstruction of justice, lying to a police officer, tampering with evidence, false pretenses, conspiracy. And what's interesting is that six of the 15 who are going to get criminally charged are actually being charged with involuntary manslaughter for those 12 uh, that related that died to of the 12 Legionnaires deaths. disease. Yeah. Absolutely. Good for them. Although, I, again, I don't think I don't think a life sentence is enough. I don't think the death penalty is enough. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about a city of a hundred thousand people 
whose children will suffer possibly for the rest of their lives. Like I, I get it. And I'm glad that this is happening. And, and I think I read that most of these sentences are going to be probably life sentences. I mean, we're talking about felonies with 20 year sentences. So right, right. these are going to be very, very stiff penalties once everything drops. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's enough. I mean, this is on the level of, of, of stringing people up in the public square to me yeah. on some Vlad the Impaler stick them, stick their heads on a spike through their butt. You know, like yeah. I, I can't imagine you can do anything to these people to impress on the rest of our public officials enough how well they got to behave moving forward. Right. Well, in that vein, I think we're let's uh, let's go ahead and read the rest of the list, because I think when we talked about this, putting together this episode, you're right. We would like to publicly shame all of these people who have been involved. And I will say their trials are coming up in 2019. Right now, they're in a pretrial process. A couple of them have pled out Four of them, I think, altogether have pled out and they're cooperating with the investigation. But uh, still, uh, these are people who, if you work at a state department of environmental quality or a cabinet of health and human services, never, ever, ever hire any of these people. <laughs> uh, we have Leanne Schechter Smith, the head of the MDEQ's drinking water unit, Adam Rosenthal, a DEQ water quality analyst, uh, Patrick cook, the DEQ specialist for the community drinking water unit. Like it's literally their job. They work at the drinking water unit. Wow. You know what I mean? Uh, We have Nancy Peeler, director of the Department of Health and Human Services, and Robert Scott, the data manager for Health and Human Services, uh, Healthy Homes and Lead Poisoning Prevention Program. Wow, buddy. Kind of dropped the ball there, didn't (laughs) you? Actually, uh, specifically what Mr. Scott and Ms. Peeler did was suppress a report that said that children had elevated uh, uh, lead levels in their blood. So the report that, you know, Miss, uh, that Mona eventually got out to us, there was actually a state health and human services report that said that, and they suppressed it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we've got Corinne Miller, uh, director of the Bureau of Epidemiology for the state, Mike Glasgow, the city's laboratory and water quality supervisor. Um, and then we come to these two guys, right? Mike Prisby. Uh, DEQ water official and Stephen Bush, the Lansing district coordinator for the DEQ's office of drinking water and municipal assistance. Let me, let me read off their charges. They're, they're very similar. Um, they've each been charged with two counts of misconduct in office, two counts of conspiracy to tamper with evidence, tampering with evidence, engaging in a treatment violation that violates the Michigan safe drinking water act and engaging in a monitoring violation that violates the Michigan Safe Drinking Water Act. In addition, Mr. Bush, who would be the senior, uh, he would be over Mr. Uh, Prisby, was one of the people charged with involuntary manslaughter. And these two guys are the genesis of it all. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to completely tear them down, okay? Because you're not? At, no, no. Well, here's what I'm saying. At first, because dude made a mistake, and we've all made mistakes at our jobs, and we have a choice. Here's where I'm going to tear them down. I get it that at first you didn't use the corrosion controls. I get it that at first you were like, oh, well, the water's testing fine here. And maybe you didn't understand the scope of your mistake. But dude, over the course of a year and a half, you had to figure it out. You had to figure it out. And, and, and you are the genesis that puts everything else into motion. Everybody else is covering up for your shit. See, I can't even give them the benefit of the doubt that you give them. The only thing that explains this to me is is bucket loads of cash being thrown at you from the KAW 
who who desperately wants their pipeline to go through. That's the only thing that explains it to me. This was their job. I they, I, they I have mean, to understand corrosion controls. You think they didn't test the Flint River water? So you're making the case that the KWA paid this guy not to use corrosion controls. No, that's impossible. <laughs> you're right. That's that that makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, I'm saying that once this thing started uh started swelling and the KAW realized, hey, we might lose our contract and this pipeline may fall through. Yeah. I'm sure they did everything within their power to, yeah. to hold things off until their pipeline was finished. No, I get that. And I agree with you. There's a lot of actors that come into play later. But you're right. I'm the chemicals about- that did not get added. <laughs> yes. There was a supreme failure somewhere yes. along the line. And and it was on these two guys. These two guys could have stopped it all. Like if they would have just owned up, I get it. They would have lost their jobs. I get it. But you're responsible for people's drinking water. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know it's hard. I get it that it's tough. Maybe it was an honest mistake, but dude, you're responsible for people's drinking water. I screw up at work. You know, somebody's towel looks a little crappy. This dude screws up at work and children are suffering for life. You have to bear that in mind, man. So yeah, I don't, I, at the end of the day, I don't reserve any hate from them. I, I, you know, I empathize with them originally, but I'm saying you have to honesty, man. Honesty, own up to your mistakes. And I, I think it's really disappointing that this is one of those stories that just kind of quietly left the news cycle because I feel like we're just now entering a point where these people are getting their trials and and we're seeing the comeuppance, we're seeing the justice, but we're not getting fed that justice for some reason. And to me, as as we are losing faith in our institutions in a, in a major way, and you've got Republicans attacking things like the EPA, and you've got the Democrats, uh, you know, supporting things like the EPA, which has astronomically failed in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wonder why the news is not covering this incredibly important part, which could restore our faith in the systems mm-hmm. around us. Like this is the check and the balance actually happening, and and I feel like. No one around me understands it's going on. I didn't know it was going on until we decided to do this show. Well, let me give you a tip. Let me give you a hint as to why maybe we got quiet all of a sudden. Who knows? We're not sure yet, but this may explain it. One of the guys who's pled down is named Daughtery Johnson. Uh, He was the Flint Utilities Administrator. Uh, He was charged with conspiracy and false pretenses, but like I said, he, he flipped. He decided to cooperate with investigators. Um, of note is that in March of 2018, the lead investigator of the Michigan Attorney General's inquiry into Flint, Andrew Arena, told a legislative committee that there is now a spinoff investigation. He said, quote, without getting too far in depth, we believe there was a significant financial fraud that drove this. Uh-huh. He says, we believe what caused the series of bad decisions was a pretty substantial financial fraud with a number of people driven by greed and personal profit. The attorney general has said that while the investigation part of the inquiry is transitioning into prosecutions and trials, they still have investigators on the case and will not rule out new charges against new defendants. But why do we mention that here? Well, a lot of the specifics of all these charges, like we said, will come out when the trials get underway in 2019. But you and I spotted something in Mr. Johnson's case that we thought was particularly interesting. Mr. Johnson is accused of defrauding the State Department of the Treasury to secure bonds to fund the KWA pipeline project initially. And he's also accused of pressuring the employees, which would be, you know, Prisby and uh, Bush, the two guys I was just talking about, 
um, pressuring them to get the switch over to the Flint River completed and on time, despite them registering reservations about the safety <laughs> of the plant. What could have motivated Mr. Johnson to do those two things? <laughs> I think we'll leave that straight up to the listeners. Well, I believe we'll we'll find out when he testifies, huh? But I think what what's to say for sure is I have to agree again with Governor Rick Snyder's assessment that this was a catastrophic failure on every level, uh, local, state, federal. I mean, we've got a Republican governor in Rick Snyder, but we've got uh, Democratic members of the city council, Democratic mayor. Uh, the woman at the EPA who helped kind of put a lid on things was appointed by Obama. I, you've got corporate money, maybe influencing people's decisions from the KWA. You look at something, pick somewhere, there's blame there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and I don't think we can talk about Flint and the water crisis without talking about racism. After all, I do believe that racism absolutely had uh, something to do with the Flint water crisis. Now, yeah. were the people at play here, were they motivated by race? I, you know, I don't think so. I, I don't see any evidence for that. There's no smoking gun emails that say, you know, screw these black people. Uh, Flint is a majority black population. And we are not past systemic racism. Uh, and I think the Michigan Human Rights Commission um, actually essentially agrees with me. They they produced a really good report where they said, hey, we're not going to rehash all of these old arguments and investigation. What we're going to do is put together a picture of how we believe racism uh, led to conditions that that caused the Flint water crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to read some some sections from that report. I encourage you guys to go read it. It's pretty long. Uh, but it's a good read. It's worth a read. And that's in the show notes. Uh, they say we are not suggesting that those making decisions related to this crisis were racists or meant to treat Flint any differently because it is a community primarily made up of people by color. Rather, the disparate response is the result of systemic racism that was built into the foundation and growth of Flint, its industry and the sub suburban area surrounding it. This is revealed through the story of housing, employment, tax base, and regionalization, which are interconnected in creating the legacy of Flint. And it's it's really hard to argue with them there. Um, they point to government policies, you know, going way back uh, the 40s, all the way up to the 70s and 80s. And, you know, obviously before that, um, they, they point to social norms and ideas. And I think this quote really sums up the argument nicely. Uh at its July 17, 1967 meeting, a concerned citizen advised the Flint City Council, most Negroes, as well as other minority groups, are concentrated in old inferior housing in old inferior neighborhoods. Many of these dwellings are unfit for human habitation, but these citizens have little, if any, alternative and are forced to pay exorbitant rates for dilapidated roach and rat-infested facilities. The past practices of the federal government, the past and current policies and practices of real estate agencies and commercial home builders, and the racial fear, fears of white homeowners, which have been exploited by the opponents of fair housing programs, have all contributed to a situation which is a disgraceful affront to our common democratic heritage. We have long since learned that the deadliest factor mitigating against desegregation, particularly in housing, is equivocation on the part of authority figures at the top. Unless elected officials take a firm and positive stand on open occupancy, dissident elements come to believe that their only rewarding means of protest is open violence and rebellion. 
under these circumstances, it's guaranteed that they're going to rebel against life in the ghetto. And and at this time, there were there were riots and looting, um, which led to severe actions by Flint's government to cur- curtail that violence. Followed shortly by an open housing act that that did allow Flint's residents to start breaking free of segregation. And and let me clarify that. This was at a time when redlining was going on. Banks were denying loans to black people who who wanted to move into white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Whites were leaving in mass because blacks were threatening to move into their neighborhoods. They were afraid that property value was going to go down. There were all sorts of government policies that still kept segregation alive, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was an officially banned practice. Um, so you know this was very real. For Flint, uh, uh, up until the 70s, I mean, you know, we didn't see this really start disappearing um, until very recently. Until it was driven to the spotlight. That's right. Until very recently in American history. And I I don't think we should we should forget that. I think I think it deserves our attention. Um, You know, so this was this was happening while while white flight was starting to ramp up. Um, And the MCRC, the Civil Rights Commission. Uh, states in their report, even the problem with the water distribution system relates directly to that white flight. Today's crisis involves a water plant and system designed to move water for twice the current population. The loss of industrial facilities only exacerbated the spatial mismatch created by the population loss. The result is a poor, less educated, and disproportionately black population left behind with a shrinking tax base and a greater share of the city's costs, including costs related to the sprawl of others. To compound the problem, rather than assist with these costs, the state significantly reduced its revenue sharing, further aggravating the city's economic woes. And man, you you can't argue with that. So this is a perfect example when I talk about systemic racism being real on the show. You know, this is 50 years ago. This right. isn't, you know, oh, 100 years ago, yada, yada. No, man, this is, this is people's kids. This, this is people's parents mm-hmm. that put up with this. You know, we're, we're one generation out, maybe a, a generation and a half at most. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, even if you don't call Rick Snyder a racist, and even if you don't call the people at, at the MDEQ racists for, for, for dropping the ball, mm-hmm. um, racism absolutely has a, a large factor in what happened here. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's that's the line that you have to draw, right? Because I think that the Civil Rights Commission largely gets it absolutely right. I think that what they're in effect saying is that systemic racism exacerbated the problem. Uh systemic racism made it much harder for the people who lived in Flint to deal with what was coming at them or to even be prepared for a mistake, you know, one guy at the Department of Environmental Quality to make a mistake. The problem is, though, is that it often gets portrayed as though the Flint water crisis was a a racist attack from, you know, and and, and I don't want to, like, necessarily credit people with, you know, a a straw man position. But there are people making cases that are that are very similar. We're not talking about systemic racism. We're talking about, you know, racist people in the government don't care about Flint and and, and stuff like that. They're letting them die. They're letting them be poisoned and all that right. stuff. George Bush hates well, black when, people. Yeah, so. well, yeah, kind of stuff like that. So when you focus in on that, when, you know, even the Michigan Civil Rights Commission says that there's no evidence of it, you're actually undermining 
the understanding of how systemic racism does impact this greatly. I agree. Now, now I would I would quibble a little bit here and there with their findings. I think that GM plant closing is is just as responsible as you know the white flight. I understand that you know white people were moving out to the burbs. And meanwhile, all the black people were getting left behind in the city center and stuff. But I also think that those white people had a vested interest to keep Flint thriving because it was still like the city that they were a part of. Maybe they were in the suburbs, but they're a part of it. Um, so long as that plant was there. Once that plant left, then they completely ditched, right? Because right. they're not still living in those suburbs. That area of Michigan is dying. Yes. In fact, Michigan as a whole is dying. And we're seeing this problem all over the state. But I don't think that the Civil Rights Commission is holding it up that systemic racism is absolutely the cause of the Flint water crisis. You know what I mean? It's it's a factor. Right. And, and again, we talk about it all the time. When you try to simplify and say Rick Snyder being a Republican and putting an emergency manager in is what caused the Flint water crisis. The EPA's regulations is what caused the Flint water crisis. Systemic racism is what caused the Flint water crisis. No, man. All three of those things and more things. Yeah. I've, I've got a bucket of things. We could have done four episodes. We could have easily done you know four I mean? episodes. But we chose to do one kind of long episode at this point. Yeah, <laughs> but it was, it was necessary. A lot of stuff went down. A lot of stuff happened. There was a lot to talk about. Um, and I just want to kind of sum up my feelings by saying I think it's a travesty that we've kind of lost sight of Flint. I think it's a tragedy that the news media... Um, allowed us to lose sight of Flint. You know, like mm -hmm. I said, especially at a time when justice is finally coming around. At the same time, um, I think the ability of folks to come together and and seeing all those truckloads of water arrive at Flint every single day, mm -hmm. um, and the thousands of people who worked tirelessly uh, to help people who were not part of their communities. Um, who were in dire need of help, you know, I think there's something to learn there. I think there's hope there. I think yeah. the fact that we might see justice and we might see life sentences for the people responsible, um, you know, there's hope there too. And I don't think it's time uh, to forget about Flynn. I don't think it's time to give up. Um, in fact, if the, if the state is cutting water supplies, Flint will soon be, and Nestle's water is running out, right. Flint will soon be in need of bottled water because, like we said, their pipes are not done until 2020. Yeah. Um, there are still spiking levels in some homes, and who knows where. That means tons of residents are deathly afraid of touching their water, and they, they should be, Yeah. Um, which means tons of residents still need fresh water. So um, if, you're, if you're in Lexington where we record this show, and I know a lot of our listeners are, um, I would urge you to reach out to Richard Spaulding. He runs Believing in Forever, a nonprofit here um, that has been making deliveries to Flint. Look him up. Reach out to him. Um, I know you've you've got a couple other charities you wanted yeah. to shout out. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put the link to all these in the uh, the episode description and the show notes. There's no shortage of places. You don't have the excuse that you couldn't find it on our show. But uh, uh, if you want to help out with Flint. Uh, it looks like the United Way Genese, I think I'm saying that right. That is the county that Flint's in. It's Genesee? Either, it's either Genesee or Genes or Genese. I don't I don't know. But the UnitedWayGenese.org is going to be the way to get a hold of them. That's where they want most of the 
the current water donations to kind of go through and monetary donations. Uh, I did double check and that United way, you know, has a great charity rating. So if there's any fears there, I know there are awful bastard predatory charities that arise <laughs> when things like this happen. And also, you know, we, we, at the very beginning of the show, I mentioned hurricane Maria and that's, that's another one. I mean, we're not going to launch into another hour long episode right now, but it's still pretty bad down in Puerto Rico, guys. Yeah. I know and, El Yunque, their rainforest that draws lots of tourism is completely devastated and yeah, shut down. Yeah. I mean, it's it's Puerto Rico is still very much hurting. Well, I found a pretty cool site that's called charitynavigator.org. And what it'll do is you go in and you type in something like Hurricane Maria or the Flint water crisis. And it gives you a list of all the charities that are actively still involved in helping and everything. And it actually has a rating that tells you whether or not it's a legit solid charity or whether it's, you know, kind of questionable and hokey and stuff. Very and nice. I just, I encourage, you know, all our listeners, you know, give if you can. And at the very least, like, don't let it just slide. Don't let it just slide out of our memory because this was this again. I mean, you know, like we said, the impacts are going to last for years. And this was the kind of thing that we really need to be up in arms about. Yes, we need to help Flint's residents, but yes, we also need to point to this and highlight why we can't let government get away with things like this and, and you know, the excesses and nitpick it, find everything that went wrong and, and watch for it going forward in other cities and towns. Because let me tell you something, folks, Flint is by no means the only city in the country with a lot of lead pipes. That's I'm going to tell you that right now, true. you know, we've so bear got, that in mind. We've got some infrastructure problems. Heck, maybe we'll do a whole episode on that. And speaking of nitpicking things, uh, I think it's time for Beans. That was, that, was who a, has a, that was a pretty sexy transition right there. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Beans has a terrible job today because, you know, he's supposed to go through and pick out all the ways we messed up. But we researched this uh, pretty well, and I think we're fairly spot on on all the facts. And besides, you know, doing such a good deed You'd have to feel bad picking us apart for it, right? You always you always get cocky right before your segment. Oh. He's going to crush us. Beans, what you got? Damn, buddies. I think you fellas just did a whole world of good by putting the spotlight back on Flint. What's been done to the good folks of Flint, Michigan is completely unacceptable, and I'm proud of you two for using the small, nigh-relevant platform you have to whisper it from the mountaintops. Of course, there's your usual slate of fumbles and inaccuracies that I'll address in a moment, but honestly, your mistakes are just keeping you guys on brand. Sense and theory, two buffoons playing at journalists, but, you know, with a heart of gold. Let's go ahead and put Michael Guillette and Genesee County on the now comically long list of names or titles theory is butchered. The boy's a beast, a monster of misnomers. But look out, folks. We might have ourselves a new challenger. I'm sure you all noticed when Sense did a little job stealing and corrected theory on pronouncing the Carignandi Water Authority. Did you notice he went on to call it the K-A-W for pretty much the whole episode? Taking jobs and slaying names. Sounds like you fellas are hanging out together too much. Theory... You cited a fetal death rate study from 2017 that has been pretty thoroughly refuted, but is still widely reported on the web. A conclusive study from this year by the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, endorsed by Flint heroes Mark Edwards and Mona Hanna Atisha, said there was evidence of a spike in premature births, but not of an increased fetal death rate. 
this is a pretty serious topic for you to go surface level on. But since you don't have a Supreme Court case to fawn over in this episode, who can blame you for checking out? My praise for this important and heartfelt episode aside, I have to admit my surprise at what you boys failed to mention. The fact that Flint's residents were expected to pay their water bills through 2014 and 2015 is an alarming error of omission. You could have pointed out that Genesee County even considered foreclosing on people's homes for non-payment of the bills. Just to highlight how truly awful this situation has been. I thought you guys would have touched on it in your attempt to alleviate your white guilt or produce this important and informative episode. Fellas, back to you. Well, thank you, Beans. And we're just all going to pretend like it didn't take you 15 takes to say the Carignandal, whatever, the Water Authority place, because you know it did. Uh, Anyway... Folks, uh, you know, just wanted to let you know, we, we started up a new discussion group on Facebook, the Sense and Theory discussion group, and we'd love to have all you guys join. Right now, we've got it set to invite only. Uh, so if you would, you know, find us on Facebook. It's uh, private, too. That means all your friends can't see your wild Alex Jones rants <laughs> when you talk about the topics that we're discussing on the show. Uh, find us on Facebook. You know, the links are in the description, hit us up and we'll send you an invite. We want to, you know, emails, hit us up on the Reddit. You know, we want to hear from you on Twitter, just wherever we can. Hey, speaking of Twitter, I'm actually really excited that you brought that up. Um, because I did something really cool this week and I can't wait to tell everyone about it. I actually sent Tay Tay a DM and asked her to come on the show, man. You, You did what? Yeah. I sent her a DM and asked her to come on the show and I'm sure it's just a matter of time. Uh, before we get our first like really big interview that's going to break us through. I mean, how could she not? (laughs) Hey folks, it's Theory of the Sins and Theory podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. We really appreciate it. It means the world to us. Uh, If you get a chance, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, uh, like us, you know, it really helps a podcast uh, take off. And, uh, you know, get at us on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at all the usual places. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to email us at uh, senseandtheorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, show ideas, suggestions, critiques, uh, condemnations, it's all good. Send it our way. Uh, we'll see you next week.